I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's Saturday, and as you may have heard, there were midterm elections back on Tuesday, and we still don't know who's going to control the House of Representatives. Democrats still shockingly have a very narrow path to maintain their majority in the House. If you want to check in over the weekend on how a few key races are going, the ones that will decide the fate of the House of Representatives, pause this and go get a pen. Here are the races to watch. Democrats need to win just four of the following elections. The longest shot that's still possible is California 27. That's Mike Garcia versus Democrat Christy Smith. The DCCC left Smith for dead and even worked against her during the primary, and she's down by just 16,000 votes. If they break hard enough for her, there's still lots out there to count, and she could potentially win. Then there's California 45, 22, and 3, where the Democrats are all down by less than 10%. In Oregon 5, Democrat Jamie McLeod Skinner is down just two points with a very narrow path to victory, despite the fact that the Oregonian has called that race. We'll talk about her race in a moment with the head of the Working Families Party, Maurice Mitchell, whose organization did the lion's share of the work on her behalf. In Arizona's 6th district, that's Tucson and southeast Arizona, Democrats are behind by just two points with a lot left to go. In Syracuse, that's New York 22, Democrats are down 1.5 points. And back in California, two races are within a point and very much winnable for Democrats. That's California 41 and 13. And then, of course, there's Lauren Boebert, the MAGA of all MAGAs, who is up roughly 1,000 votes and probably going to a recount in Colorado. So if they win four of those and hold all the ones that they currently lead, they will have a 218 to 217 margin. Now, the painful part for Democrats is that if they hadn't done so badly in New York, they'd have an even easier path to the majority. Democrats started the race with an 11-seat margin in New York, but next session, it'll be down to just a four-seat margin if they lose the last race still being counted, as it looks like they probably will. Now this week, I asked Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez what she made of the disaster that was New York State. I mean, New York, I think, is the glaring aberration in what we see in this map. I think, I mean, I, I have a front row seat <laughs> to what was going on here, so... I think it's natural for me to gravitate towards that. But I think even nationally, what happened in New York really bucks a lot of the trends in what we saw nationwide. And I think that that's kind of like the glaring hole in where we did not perform as strongly as uh, as other areas in the map did. What were what were those key differences, you think, between the way they were run in New York and elsewhere? I think policing was a big one. I think... The choice among certain Democrats to validate Republican narratives and amplify Republican narratives on crime and policing, running ads on it, validating these narratives actually ended up hurting them much more than 
a, a different approach. I think that what we saw in other races was that they were able to really effectively center either their narratives and the narratives that they wanted to run with, whether it was abortion rights, whether it was uh, democracy, whether it was, you know, other key and top priorities. Uh, I think Democrats in New York, they did a couple of things. They ran ads uh, around that were explicitly mm-hmm. very anti-defund, which only served to re-invoke the frame mm-hmm. and only served to like really reinforce what we what Republicans were saying. And then, you know, even what we see is that if we're going to talk about public safety, you don't talk about it in the frame of invoking defund or anti-defund. You really talk about it in the frame of what we do on gun violence, what we've done to pass the first gun reform bill in 30 years. Like that's actually our alternatives are are actually effective electorally uh, without having to lean into Republican narrative. So I think that was one prime mistake. And I think another prime mistake is that in New York State, I think that, you know, Cuomo may be gone, but his entire infrastructure, much of his infrastructure and much of the political machinery uh, that he put in place is still there. And this is a machinery that is disorganized. It is sycophantic. Uh, it relies on lobbyists and big money, and it really undercuts the ability for there to be a farming grassroots and state level organizing across the state. And so when that languishes and there's very little organizing, organizing happening, yeah, I mean, basically you're leaving a void for Republicans to walk into. And so I actually think a lot of these Republican gains aren't necessarily like as strong as they may seem. I think it's really from an absence. It's a testament to the corruption that has allowed to continue uh, in the New York State Democratic Party. And, and I mean, we saw that with India Walton. We mm-hmm. saw it like loud and clear. There, there were a lot of canaries in the coal mine from the state ballot initiative. I mean, JJ, the Republicans put millions of dollars into defeating the redistricting ballot measure last year that would have protected the map that would have put us ahead. And so I, I really believe that we would have, we would have won Democratic seats, potentially gained Democratic seats in New York State, uh, but Republicans put millions of dollars against this ballot measure. They organized against it. And the New York State Democratic Party didn't drop a dollar mm-hmm. in making sure that we got this thing passed. And this was in an off-year election. This was in 2021. We could have done this. And um, and the fact that that happened and there still was no implication for the state and for state party leadership, I mean, a lot of this was really about this, these calcified political machines being asleep at the wheel and there being a complete lack of desire to hold any of it accountable. And you, you call for Jay Jacobs to resign. Uh, what, what leverage do you and other progressives in the state have to make that happen? Is there anything being done organizationally to push that? What would re, what kind of structure would you see replacing the, the structure of the former Cuomo folks? Well, I think right now, the New York State Democratic Party, the way that it is currently structured is very reliant on the governor 
And I think that, you know, the, between Cuomo resigning late last year, Hochul then very unexpectedly taking the gubernatorial seat, then immediately dealing with a natural disaster, having to contend with a pri- with a potential primary and then a general, I just don't think that that structure has really been, you know, I don't really think that there's been as much breathing room to address that issue in that whole environment. But it's very clear that the New York State Democratic Party has been was designed under Cuomo to be very reliant on on the governor's seat. Like the governor very much determines who the state party chair is, etc. And I think that given how progressives really organized um, and helped deliver that margin, I think that there very much is room for a conversation to be held here about how we can restructure how the party is selected and established in perhaps a more decentralized way or perhaps in a more democratic way uh, that is more representative of communities and more encouraging of engagement across the state. And less meddling, to be frank. And so, you know, because these little cuts really do build up, whether it was the failure in the ballot initiative, whether it was the refusal to recognize and respect uh, when progressive candidates do win Democratic nominations outright, that the party doesn't work against its own nominees, uh, which is what happened in Buffalo. Or, you know, I can say... I've been in Congress for four years. I have never had a conversation with the New York State Democratic Party chair, mm-hmm. ever. And in fact, he's done nothing but attack progressive Democrats um, all across the state. And so what he has done is created an environment where the only, quote unquote, or the main, quote unquote, legitimate Democratic candidates worthy of support are those who, who fight both progressives and Republicans, which is clearly not a winning strategy, especially not in the state of New York. And so when he has invested so much energy into demoralizing the grassroots and, and making sure that a lot of this grassroots energy gets busted up all across the state, of course, we're going to see these margins swing towards Republicans. And so, um, you know, I think there really is something to be said here about a change in leadership and a change in structure of the state party, because this is really, I mean, in 2018, when Cuomo was running against Cynthia Nixon, the state convention first of all, like didn't even invite really any progressives that were there, even after my, I won my primary. But beyond that, like it voted to endorse Cuomo by a margin, something like 97%, which is nowhere near what the primary was, right? It was like a banana Republic. Mm -hmm. And so it really just solely exists to just reaffirm the image of the governor, as opposed to actually investing in an infrastructure that promotes democratic organizing. And so, you know, I think that there's a, there's a lot here. A lot of it is also driven by big money and both the real estate and charter lobbies invest very heavily and have an enormous amount of influence in terms of what candidates are you know, get Democratic support in the state and which ones don't. And one of the key players in that kind of real estate, uh, charter school, state party apparatus that you talked about is Hakeem Jeffries. Um, Do you think that there ought to be 
a reckoning for what his role is in this. Looks like he's going to make a bid for party leader if Pelosi uh, steps down. What do you think the repercussions are of how New York played out for that? Well, you know, I think what we should really do is like, I think it, it, I think there are quite a few figures who really affirmed and really pushed this playbook. And it's not even just this year. You know, I think there has been a multi-year strategy to try. It's essentially been a campaign within the Democratic Party to try to undermine progressive politics and try to mischaracterize it as toxic. And I think a continued insistence on that is going to hurt the party. Because I think one of the big things that we learned last night is that not only is it not true, but that candidates who refuse to overcompensate and overly tack right were actually rewarded for sticking to their values um, and while doing their best to represent their communities. And so, you know, I personally do think that there should be a political cost to to being heavily backed by big money. That, to me, is just a primary concern. And regardless of who it is, you know, in this discussion about generational change in the Democratic Party, I think we also need to be looking at donor bases. And we shouldn't be shifting in a direction where the party, where our party leadership becomes even more dependent on large donors and corporate backers, um, not less dependent, especially in a time when more Democrats are being elected independent of that and where the infrastructure for small dollar fundraising has only grown and become more vibrant. So I do hope that there really is reflection on some of the strategies that went awry in New York um, and how that was different from other places in the country. And I do hope that there is a, you know, that that there is a reflection on being outwardly antagonistic towards a very enthused progressive base, especially one in which young people delivered these wins. If you look at the difference between Tim Ryan and John Fetterman's races, some of the preliminary data is suggesting that they had the same turnout in almost every demographic except young people. You know, it's not to say that everybody has to be holding the same line on progressive causes dependent on their community, but it does, I do think that this is a signal that being outwardly antagonistic, including trying to defeat progressive candidates, trying to demoralize um, those bases, is not healthy for, for the prospect of democratic gains. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. 
That was AOC. And if you want to read the full Q&A I did with her, that's over at TheIntercept.com. Now, the Working Families Party, meanwhile, had a hell of a cycle. WFP started out in New York, but has been slowly expanding across the country, largely playing in local races. This cycle, they expanded in earnest to the federal level, both House and Senate, and helped usher in a new class of squad members, including Greg Kassar in Austin, Summer Lee in Pittsburgh, and Delia Ramirez in Chicago. Maurice Mitchell is the national director of the Working Families Party, and he joins us now. Maurice, welcome to Deconstructed. Thanks for joining me. It's good to be here. So I want to talk a lot about New York and the catastrophe that was mm. over there. Um, but first, you know, we're still in this, it's Friday afternoon, this will come out Saturday morning. Votes are still coming in. We probably still won't know when people start listening to this, what the outcome is in the House. And mm. some of that depends on California, some of it depends on Lauren Boebert, some of it depends on on Oregon 5. And I want to zero in really quickly on on Oregon 5, which is a race that we covered a bunch you guys uh, played heavily in. This was where Jamie McLeod Skinner, a progressive, took on Kurt Schrader, former chair of the Blue Dogs, who you know was a very vocal opponent kind of of the Build Back Better agenda, even was one of the few Democrats who was willing to kind of say he was against it. That's right. Like, rather than, rather than play cute and be like, no, 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 I'm for it. I just would love it to be a little bit different. Like, privately, in, in a call we obtained with no labels, he, was, he said straight up that he was not, you know, he was going to focus on killing it. That's right. Um, so he loses. And, and now where are we now? So wh- what, how did you guys decide to get into that, that race? And, you know, tell us about or- Oregon 5, where that stands. Sure. So progressives, I think it's pretty well known that progressives formed an, a legislative united front with the Biden administration to pass Go Back Better. And progressives, I think, were, were really the most loyal and thoughtful strategists and played a really great inside-outside sort of game in order to pass the Go Back Better agenda. Now, you know, in the final sort of yards, we had a group of sort of turncoat Democrats in the House. And, you know, Representative Schrader is a great example of that. Sort of become chaos agents and sort of throw the whole agenda into seemingly like unending chaos with their objections. And he specifically, and you have to understand, one of the planks of the Democratic Party's platform that is resoundingly popular with most people is the plank around controlling the costs of prescription medicines. Mm -hmm. And this was an area where there is no constituency for this, right? There's a a broad-based constituency to control the cost of prescription medicine. He chose the position where there's no constituency. The only constituency is the pharmaceutical companies where he objected to that, right? And, right. so, and he even said, he even said, if he didn't do that, he wouldn't be able to fund his campaign. Do you remember that? That's right. It, it couldn't. It couldn't be more clear that he was aligning around corporate interests against the clear interests of the majority of, of people in the country, and, and certainly his constituents. And we understood coming out of that process that we had to use the primaries as an opportunity to give a rebuke to these turncoat Democrats that were disloyal to the agenda and disloyal to the president. And he was on the top of our list. And we had a really amazing candidate in Jamie McLeod Skinner, who 
I think presents to us the 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 avatar of what it looks like for a progressive to run in a populist way that brings together the entire community, including some Republicans and independents, as well as people identify as progressives, on a populist pro-people agenda. And Jamie is one of the best communicators for that. In a, in a district that is largely rural, in a district that is a purple district, Jamie routed him. Mm-hmm. And it's important to note that Jamie was outspent five to one, right? And, and he got the president's endorsement after being disloyal to the president. And with the president's endorsement and being spent out with outside money, including some of that pharmaceutical money, five to one, Jamie routed him. And what made that extra unusual, tell me, it felt like it was extra unusual because she had almost the entire kind of local Democratic Party apparatus, all the different county operations, you know, decided to reject their incumbent Democrat and endorse her and, and actually work pretty hard for her. Usually, if progressives are trying to unseat an incumbent, they, they also have to go up against some of the local Democratic machine because they're aligned with, with the incumbent. But he had, got, he had broken so far that she, she not only had the kind of national progressive support and local progressive support, but even like party support across the district. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of Jamie's race challenges the mainstream or centrist orthodoxy around progressives, right? This idea that progressives can't build broad coalitions, like Jamie built that. And I think it's it's exemplified in the fact that you had the Democratic Party infrastructure cutting ties with the incumbent, right? As well as many in, in labor organizations and others choosing in this moment to align with her because he had gone so far right and so so deeply connected to and so like nakedly cynically aligned with the, the corporate line that you know it it was unconscionable to support him and it showed in the outcome and i think it, it demonstrated for us it vindicated our belief that progressives could run and win in any context you know so coming out of that primary win we made sure to communicate to anybody who would listen that you should put your smart money on Jamie that this race would be close, that she was the right candidate for the seat. And unfortunately, like uh, national Democrats did not invest in the race. And Jamie, as we're talking, we're still counting votes in Jamie's race. It is going to be razor thin, whatever the outcome is. And if Jamie wins, it will be a win for progressives without a question. If Jamie loses, then a lot of those national Democrats are going to have to do some serious soul searching and shame on them for, you know, we'll talk about New York later, but for pulling $6 million of national resources into Sean Patrick Maloney's race, for example, and not a dime into Jamie's race. So I I was talking to some national Democratic operatives who were pleading their case today. Some of them pointed out, well, the DCCC did put in you know, about 1.8 million across across the race. But it is also true that in the in the remaining weeks, both the DCCC and and House Majority PAC, which is the, the super PAC kind of tied to Democratic leadership, just pulled out. One operative said the data just wasn't there. They were arguing like, you know, that all we can do is look at the data and the data wasn't there. What would be, because they, you know, they want to try, they want to say it wasn't, 
it wasn't ideological because there is a lot of suspicion among progressives that one of the things that goes into the calculations that these national Democrats make is not just straight up who's who's going to be most likely to win, but who who is the more centrist kind of pro-corporate Democrat. And if this is somebody who knocked off a corporate Democrat, that it might be a little harder for them to get a hearing in Washington that their race is worth supporting. I, I don't buy that argument. I, I, I will say this. You know, I want to I want to engage in a good faith debate with folks, and I think people could differ around strategy. And people that I differ with around strategy aren't immediately corrupt, or you know, I don't want to at, at all assume that. But I do want to push back on this on this argument that there just simply wasn't any data to suggest that. I mean, we were regularly in conversation. We don't just talk to progressives when we're running in a general election. We talk to anybody including folks that we usually aren't aligned with on a number of issues, because we have a shared interest in having a House majority for Democrats. And so we were providing countervailing evidence that suggested that she was close. And, you know, people made up their own, you know, minds based on what was strategically relevant for them. I think it's clear that our analysis was closer to reality than theirs. And you know, we weren't just basing it on feels and vibes. We were basing it on, on data as well. Right. And then the numbers are bearing that out. It's going it, to, the people I know out, out there say the chances that she's going to make up the gap are very slim, not impossible. Um, but, the, but it is going to be very close. Uh, That's no, right. No matter what. Do, do you have any insight into California before we go to New York? Did you play in any of those or did you watch any of those races? Because it looks like the House is going to be decided there. Yeah, I have less visibility into the California congressional races. We, we, we played more heavily in the assembly races and some of the municipal races. You know, so I'm, I'm more of an observer as, as it relates to you're the, like the re- California races. You're refreshing the New York Times or AP with everybody else. On <laughs> exactly. The yeah, that's so, right. So in New, New York, um, wh- yeah. where would you... How far back would you go to pinpoint this immediate catastrophe? Well, I don't want to take you into the recesses of Governor Cuomo's strategic mind. (laughs) So, um, but this is what I would say, because it's multifaceted, right? In Governor Cuomo, for anybody who doesn't know, the former Democratic governor who governed in a very, very top-down one-man rule sort of way, even at the detriment of his own party, even at the detriment of the members of his own party, and famously empowered Republicans in the state Senate in order to form an alliance that allowed him to decide what legislation got passed and basically to foil progressives and to specifically foil the Working Families Party, right? (laughs) And we became his almost singular obsession, figuring out how to, how to topple us for cycle after cycle. So Governor Cuomo, a lot of his infrastructure is still in place, like a lot of his appointees and judicial appointees. So Democrats drew lines, you know, through the redistricting process, and Republicans sued. It went up to Governor Cuomo appointees in the judiciary And those appointees threw a grenade into the process, and they decided on the side of the Republicans and totally redrew the the lines and made them less favorable to Democrats. So that is 
one aspect of this sort of perfect storm that we're in, right? And I interviewed uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez earlier this week, and she had mentioned that there was a ballot referendum in 2021 that would have implicated that that decision, that the Democrats decided just not to play in at all and Republicans spent heavily on. Were, were you guys involved in that? What, what is she, what's she talking about oh, there? I, oh, yeah. I've got, got a cop to not covering that. Well, sure, that's correct. I mean, you know, the, the Democratic Party apparatus in, in New York, because it has existed so long as a one-man sort of rule party, is, is anemic. And the apparatus has missed so many opportunities, including many of these ballot measures. And this is one of them. Like, that, if, if that had gone the right way, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be in this situation. If, if Governor Cuomo governed like a Democrat, we wouldn't be in this situation. And if looking at the lines and looking at the lines in this less favorable condition, if Sean Patrick Maloney, who is a New York Democrat, but also the chair of the DCCC, didn't operate in one of the most nakedly selfish manners you could imagine for the chair of the DCCC and jump seats. So he left his district and he pushed Mondaire Jones out of his district because he wanted to be in a safer district, Mm -hmm. right? And what's fascinating by this, right? So follow this. He pushed Mondaire Jones out and Mondaire ended up running in a district that covers parts of Manhattan and Brooklyn, which was much safer for, for Democrats. He ran in this district and he ran to the right. He punched to the left. He called out the defund movement. He embraced, he couldn't be the, the more, the most, he was probably the most pro-police candidate. Um, and so he kind of- Got money from the police even. Yeah. And, and he sort of bought into the, the, the crime hysteria that was manufactured in part by Republicans, but also some Democrats. And he lost. He lost his race. The chair of the DCCC lost his race. Directly next to him, right, in the Ryan race, so Ryan embraced... Was that the seat he left? Yes, that's the seat that he left. Right. The seat that he left. He embraced, in that seat, the, the candidate embraced WFP, and he ran as a populist, pro-abortion, and also ran on a number of economic populist issues in a very purple, really challenging seat, and he won. And so... And that's a seat that Maloney himself thinks was more difficult to run. Absolutely. That's why he left it. Yes. And and the other part of this that actually, you know, it's a New York story, but there's national implications because he was the chair of the DCCC. And of course, he had, you know, he, he says that he recused himself from all of those decisions. The National Democrats sent $6 million of national resources into his losing campaign. Now, just imagine if a fraction of that money went to Jamie McLeod Skinner's campaign, right? We might be having a different conversation about her race. We might not be talking about counting ballots right now. So to, to me, the story about the, the New York party and the colossal strategic and sort of political failure that was gathering over years 
of Cuomo rule, of missed opportunities, of uh, weak infrastructure. You know, I'll give another example. You know, there's counties, county parties. There's a Brooklyn County party that actually has some capacity. And, you know, Brooklyn is one of the most intensely Democratic counties. You think if you're running a statewide race, you would have a major turnout operation. They did not spend a dollar turning anybody out. In fact, by most standards, and you could look at the cover of Long Island's Newsday, which is no paragon of leftist thought, right? On the, on the cover of Newsday, when they're talking about the Hochul win, they credit Working Families Party as a critical hmm. component of that win because we were doing the traditional voter contact, texting, visibility at poll places, vis- visibility in communities, uh, organizing, phoning people, and building uh, momentum around progressives and others voting on road D for the Working Families Party all across the country, uh, all across the state, rather. And most observers agree that the work that Working Families Party did in migrating people towards our line and organizing people to feel excitement around Kathy Hochul and Antonio Delgado is in part what made a horrible night for Democrats less horrible in New York. Yeah, people in Brooklyn and uh, were t- and New- uh, Manhattan were telling me that they couldn't really tell that there was an election going on that day. If you walked out of your apartment, there you know, that's right. was, was, that, was that about right? That's, that's right. I mean, I've talked to a number of voters that, that said if they didn't get voter contact from WFP, they didn't get voter contact. If they didn't get mail from WFP, it did not happen. And you have to understand, like, there was a lot of money raised and spent, you know, uh, uh, and I'm unsure exactly how that money landed. The other thing I would say, when you, when you factor in all of these factors, right, and Antonio Delgado is a perfect example. He was an incumbent in a purple seat, right? And uh, the governor, Kathy Hochul, plucked him out of his purple seat and chose him as her lieutenant governor running mate, right? She could have chosen anybody. She chose- like pretty late, in, like we're talking late in the, yes, the cycle yes. here. So, I mean, you factor in all of these decisions. Independently, these are poor decisions. Collectively, they create the colossal mess that are the outcomes that folks are still processing in New York. And the, the one, you know, from our standpoint as progressives, the one ray of sunshine is how progressives showed up. I mean, the other rap on progressives is that progressives aren't disciplined, progressives aren't are disloyal, progressives aren't strategic. I mean, in this, in this case, progressives in New York showed up for a slate that on a lot of levels we don't agree with, but we understood that our prime directive was to defeat a MAGA Republican in Lee Zeldin and to, to prevent New York from flipping over to the Republic, which actually became a more and more credible threat. Mm-hmm. That was our number one uh, prerogative. And, you know, thank God we have our own ballot line in New York where we can encourage progressives to feel proud to pull the lever for candidates that they might not necessarily see eye to eye with on a number of issues. We do see eye to eye with almost all Democrats around the question of whether or not we should live in a democracy or whether or not MAGA Republicans should have any power. And so I was thinking recently or thinking yesterday about what would have happened if 
Tish James, who had floated a bid uh, against Kathy Hochul uh, for for governor. Let's say she runs and she wins a primary. That wouldn't have necessarily changed a lot of the kind of underlying structures that drove what happened in this race on Tuesday. So you still would have seen a lot of losses in Long Island. You know, Sean Patrick Maloney probably still loses. Some of these other races probably go down as well. I was imagining what a kind of celebration of hate there would be for the progressive wing of the party if that had happened. Like it would be, you know, MSNBC, CNN would just be, would just have declared that, well, this shows what happens if you have a progressive on the top of the ticket. And now obviously they can't do that because she wasn't on the top of the ticket and it kind of exposes, you know, how empty that, that rhetoric would be. But do you think I'm right? Like, am I imagining the, the correct scenario? You know, and, and many people actually don't know that the New York's Attorney General Tish James began as an independent, not Democrat, mm-hmm. but independent Working Families Party candidate. She ran on in the general elected, yeah, right? In, the, in, in a general election against the Democrats as a Working Families Party candidate, right? But absolutely, I think what you're saying, the intense bias, the media and strategic bias against, against progressives is is real, right? And so I'll, I'll give an example. I'm not hearing pundits, I'm not hearing anybody use that logic in trying to understand Sean Patrick Maloney's loss, right? Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of pundits suggesting that the tough on crime rhetoric and this sort of embracing the most maximalist position on policing is what clearly lost it for Sean Patrick Maloney. Nobody's arguing that his ideological point of view is why he lost. And that's fair because an electoral loss is multifaceted. It could have been a number of things. It could have been a combination of things. See, when they lose, they're able to carry nuance. When we mm-hmm. lose, they're, it's just they're, nuance is out the window. And, you know, the story is, once again, progressives lose it all, right? And so I do think that that, that bias has become so ingrained people don't even challenge it right but it's 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 real and on that crime question i in in my conversation with uh with aoc she also brought that up and she criticized you know maloney and others for kind of parroting and and really reinforcing kind of republican talking points on on the crime question and not putting forward their their own vision the the nuance or the complication that i would add to that and i'd like to get your response to this is that Progressives also didn't really offer a a counter narrative for at least maybe the first year of the kind of national public safety debate. The argument you would hear instead was, "Well, you're you're misreading the crime stats, and you know crime is up. It, it, the, so, some crimes are up, other crimes are down." It, there seemed to be a real reluctance to engage with the fact that crime was up because you didn't because progressives didn't want to reinforce. And what Fox News was saying and what Republicans were saying. And so instead of finding a middle ground, went with, well, you know, these these certain crimes are not up. So what in 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 hindsight was was that a mistake? And what is the kind of progressive message on crime? Because if you look sure. at even polling from like Center for American Progress, progressives do have messages on public safety and crime that can resonate. But to me, it felt like they weren't actually making them because they were nervous about validating. They felt like if they validated that, they were validating Fox and they're validating the attacks on policing. And, and so they just stayed away from it and tried to change the subject. 
Well, I mean, there's so much to say here, and I wouldn't just focus on Sean Patrick Maloney. Like any conversation about the failure of Democrats and centrists on this issue, you I mean has to include Mayor Adams. His his whole shtick is is constantly st- scaring New Yorkers instead of de- developing a, a platform, just sort of manufacturing more and more hysteria around crime. And in doing so, when Democrats do that, our feeling is that they align with the right-wing narrative. And what, they are, what they're saying is that Democrats and Republicans both agree that Democrats don't have a handle on violent street crime, right? Which, which makes it even harder for Democrats to operate um, successfully politically. But to your, to your other point, number one, absolutely... I believe strongly that progressives should lean into the debate around public safety and policing. And there are strong, popular progressive messages around that. We've done our own testing on this. We've done our own research and polls. And we feel strongly that a message that, number one, acknowledges how people are actually feeling and also then pivots to the things that we know most people agree with, with progressives, works. Like most people independents and Republicans as well, agree with the basic notion that the roots of crime lie in things that police can't generally solve, like mental health and chemical addiction and homelessness. People actually understand that. And when you talk about the investments that need to be made in order to get, uh, make us all safe and in order to create public safety, a lot of people progressives, independents, and Republicans actually get that. It makes sense to people. What we also learned is a few things. Like, number one, the hysteria, yes, people are concerned about crime, but the hysteria around crime some, somehow superseding all the other issues that people care about, we weren't seeing that. It was a, it was a prevailing issue, but inflation and abortion continued to record very highly in all of the polling that we were doing. So we understood that people were dealing in an environment where they had multiple things that they were wrestling with. The other thing I would say is that when you see the data on crime, in crime, right, and you see the number of voters that suggest that, you know, X percentage of people are concerned with crime, within that number, like, our country is very racialized. We're very, in a very racially segregated country. Within that number are... Black people who live in urban communities where street crime is actually more of a real day-to-day reality, those voters also have factored all of that in and pretty consistently, percentage-wise, vote for Democrats. So their concern around crime doesn't also somehow suggest that they might shift to vote for MAGA Republicans. And they're part of that Mm-hmm. overall percentage of people that are concerned around crime. So there's a lot of nuances there. You know, how people are prioritizing that concern, the types of communities they live in, their their actual lived experience with street crime or violent crime or intercommunity violence, and then how it how how the, the political calculus is working for them in order to decide whether or not to vote generically for a Republican or a Democrat. And the last thing I'll say is we want to see Democrats and progressives not be afraid of their shadow when it comes to policing and when it comes to crime and public safety. And our hope is following what I think most people would agree is a historic 
election for Democrats that, you know, some of the hysteria might be able to break and we could engage in a more rigorous policy-based sort of conversation about what actually needs to happen. And there, there I actually think that progressives have a lot of solutions that are, are very, very popular and progressives should absolutely lean into it. Our, our research suggests that, that progressives could, could win over people based on a pro-investment in communities re- response to, to public safety. Yeah, it, it, I also wonder if Rikers is it's is itself uh you know driving crimes rikers has always been awful always like always but it it feels significantly worse in the last couple of years and i wonder if there's something about the collapse the the utter collapse of rikers that is that that is then having a, a boomerang effect in making the streets less less safe for a variety of different reasons some of which i could probably put my finger on some of which i couldn't but just kind of feel right. And that just feels stuck. Like you've got the left saying we need to shut Rikers down, but then you, you've got all these communities rejecting all the alternatives to Rikers. Uh, and it just seems like this, like complete hellhole and like ongoing human rights catastrophe that is Rikers is just sitting there and just getting worse and worse and worse. Yeah. You know, I can't speak on based on sort of direct experience on those campaigns, although I'm, I have relationships with folks who, who are, are deeply involved in the Rikers uh, campaign. I can't say generally because I do have some depth um, in, in general on subjects of, the subject of policing and, and, um, and the criminal legal system. I do think that Rikers is, um, is actually like a, a helpful example of everything that's wrong with our criminal legal system. And this, I want to get back to the point that I made earlier. There's actually a lot of of shared agreement across race and across ideology on a number of key sort of core understandings around the criminal legal system. Most people agree that our criminal legal system is not working, right? Like there's very few people who look at what's happening in Rikers and think, yeah, that's, Mm -hmm. That's ideal. Right. Things, things are working, right? And so therefore, most people are interested and, and want to lean into reform of our criminal legal system, including independents and a lot of Republicans. And most people think that police should be held accountable when they do bad things, including independents and a significant percentage of Republicans. That's after all of the sort of prop the, the propaganda and all of the like wall-to-wall Fox News hysteria on defund the police and everything else, that people still understand in a very core way that our system, our system of policing and our criminal legal system is not operating optimally or operating in line with our values. And I do think that that does give me some hope um, that after this election, right, I do think that the election and how how much hysteria was placed on policing and, and the, the, the system, it, it almost made it impossible, I think, for any political actors to do anything significant. But now that the election is over, and now that I think most observers recognize that voters, in as much as they cared about uh, public safety and crime, they also cared about a, a lot of other things. And this idea that there would be this red wave that the Republicans would surf that was mainly 
comprised of people's hysteria and, and anxiety around crime, I think most people understand that that actually isn't the case. And that's going to inform people's both policy and political calculus going forward. So oh, nearby, over in, over in Connecticut, uh, Johanna Hayes hung on, and that made it a, a sweep of the congressional uh, delegation. She's kind of progressive running in a, in a swing district there. Uh, but Ned Lamont, uh, running for re-election, progressive governor, who people might remember, who he beat Joe Lieberman way back in 2006 or 2008 or whenever that was, and then Joe Lieberman ran as an independent and, and stopped him from becoming a senator. Uh, he's now governor of Connecticut. You guys became a major, major, weirdly, a major part of that race. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So so in Ned Lamont's last race, and, and for folks that don't know, Working Families Party were a lot of things, but you know, in New York and Connecticut, we have a ballot line based on something called fusion, which I won't go into, but it allows a, a independent third party like us to cross endorse the Democrat, right? Um, so we have that fusion line in, in Connecticut and Ned Lamont uh, won his election with a razor thin margin and the votes on the Working Families Party line certainly uh, were, were the margin of error, uh, sorry, the margin of victory rather. In this election, in 2022, Ned Lamont had the same general election opponent, right? So it's like a, almost, it's like a, a head, a, the same head to head. The difference though, is that the Republicans chose to hit him really hard on policing and a tenuous relationship to defund the police through the Working Families Party endorsement. And they threw a lot of money and a lot of mail on this particular line of attack. And when all things are said and done, and when all the ballots are, 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 are counted, the margin of victory had grown between his, his last race and this race. And so it's as much of, of a scientific A-B test as we can on the, the impact of some of these attacks. You know, elections are multifaceted, but in as much as people claim that these attacks are just slam dunks, I, I, just, I think there's enough counterfactual evidence to suggest that's not true. Yeah, and the Minneapolis elected a, a public defender to be a prosecutor out there. And you had in Los Angeles, uh, the controller, like famously, he, he ran a, ton, this, a lefty who ran a whole bunch of ads, uh, billboards that were just showing a, a bar graph of how much money police were getting compared to you know, all the other social services in Los Angeles. Seems, seems that he's going to end up exceeding either of the mayoral candidates in, in vote totals, you know, cru cruising. Uh, to election. And so you did have some races that complicated the narrative that, you know, the Democratic position on policing was going to, you know, lead lead to a wipeout. But at the same time, uh, it was I was interested to hear you say that Democrats do need to acknowledge the the increase in crime, the, 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 the fact that people do feel less safe out in the streets now than they did a couple years ago. And that just saying, well, it's not as bad as 1995, you know, is is isn't enough. So how, what conversation are you hearing among kind of progressive leaders who are shaping policy? Are you are you hearing a lot of people who are using some of these wins to say, we don't need to talk about this at all, we can just stay the course? Or are there more people going your direction who are saying, we, we, we do need to, not now that the election is over, we need to think, think very, you know, deliberately about how we're going forward while not just completely collapsing in the face of the attacks. I think people are taking this very, very seriously. And I think there's, there's three things that people need to do. You know, 
organizing one-on-one. You need to meet people where they're at. And in as much as people feel authentic concerns and anxiety, you need to engage with them in an emotionally appropriate way. Like if if people are feeling anxiety, you don't bust out a, a... a bar graph or some, you know, that's just yes. not how that works. Look, crime was worse in 1993 in this city. Why are you scared? Yeah, you know, um, so there's there's that. Number two, most people actually think that police are doing way too much. And, but most people agree that if police focused on, there's like a lot of agreement that police should do the things that, you know, if you, you, you stay up too late and, you know, you're watching either MSNBC or CNBC, like all of those shows, those like police mm-hmm. solve, like all of that stuff, police solving murders, <laughs> that stuff. Yes. People generally accept that that would be a really good use of police policing and, and their skills. Now, solving for homelessness and chemical addiction and youth outreach and all these other things and being psychologists. Like most people think like, yeah, we shouldn't be holding them to that broad, sprawling sort of mandate. And there's ways of talking about that where progressives can, number one, engage in an emotionally appropriate way to people who are feeling all types of anxiety, right? And sometimes that anxiety is so multi-layered, right? You know, perhaps, like, there there may be less factual evidence, but if you're watching in, in the, you know, for example, in New York with Mayor Adams' parroting these lines every single day. If you're watching the, the news and that you, you see every, the most horrible example of street crime on, on the local news, that's going to cause some anxiety, even if you're relatively safe in your, in your own community, right? That's real. People's emotions are real. They're not, you know, like people's feelings are real and debating around that is not necessarily helpful. So that's number one. Number two, I think acknowledging that many people do agree that police have a role in doing things like solving violent crimes and solving uh, heinous crimes like rapes and other crimes that, that should be solved. And people should be, there should be accountability. P- most people believe in accountability. And I think talking about accountability is actually a progressive value that progressives could really lean into. And then, and then pivoting to the solutions, all of the investments outside of police that most people agree would make communities safer. I think that is the, you know, tying those things together is how progressives can really lean into this debate in ways that are emotionally empathetic and responsive and also align with our values and also are like ultimately good policy solutions. Well, Maurice, thank you so much for taking some time. I appreciate it. Thank you. That was Maurice Mitchell and that's our show. Deconstruct is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go and leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you soon. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. 
but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.